Welcome to In The Money, sponsored by Flyer Financial Technologies, the company that builds cutting-edge technology designed to solve asset and wealth management firms' toughest trading workflows. In this podcast, we help advisors and asset managers understand how technology is transforming the wealth tech sector. We'll cover how to leverage technology for faster, smarter investment decisions, megatrends, and more. Now, on to the show. Welcome to In The Money. I'm your host, Shannon Rosick from Flyer Financial Technologies. I'm joined today by Lex Sokolin, and he is the head economist and global fintech co-head at Consensus, a blockchain technology company building the infrastructure and applications that enable a decentralized world. In this episode, it's all about decentralized finance, also known as DeFi. So let's get to the good stuff. Lex, long time no see, but hey, that's the best part of technology, right? We can hop on our computers from anywhere and connect. You're in the UK. I'm here in Denver. So thank you so much for joining me. Fantastic to be here with you. So I always tell my guests, I like to start with the hardest question first, (laughs) which is your own personal elevator pitch. So tell me and our listeners about your background and why you ultimately do what you do today. So existential. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so for me, I, I combined two things together, which are a little bit contradictory. And the first is a traditional financial and economic skill set. And so I like systems, I like structures, I like understanding them and building them and analyzing them. And then the second is um, kind of a creative drive and an interest in novelty, the visual arts, technology, and and kind of innovation, and often kind of blowing stuff up and rebuilding it and seeing what happens, being able to turn the page. And so for me in my career, I've pursued novelty and creativity within my practice of financial services. So I, I started my career at Lehman, um, I got a, a quick education in very many things uh, that we can open up if interesting. And then uh, from there was uh, was able to get into entrepreneurship very early on uh, into robo-advice around 2009 uh, and then kind of go deeper and deeper into fintech. I found that a company called Nasdaq Wealth, which ended up turning into Advisor Engine and um, uh, funded by Wisdom Tree and acquired by Franklin Templeton a few years back. Um, and then I moved on to uh, an equity research practice where I was a partner building out uh, a view on fintech called Autonomous Research and spent a couple of years building out my mental models on broader innovation in the sector. So uh, from neobanks to paytech to larger platform shifts like machine learning and augmented reality, and of course, blockchain and crypto. So around 2017, I, I went much deeper into, um, into tokens and, and crypto. And with the launch of Ethereum, found a lot of compelling things in computational blockchains. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. After Autonomous was bought by Alliance Bernstein, uh, I left to join Consensus and to kind of go back to operating and, and going being in the frontier. Um, and so I've been at Consensus since 2019 um, in, in a number of roles, from software product roles to running the marketing team to now focusing on what's called crypto economics. Um, and um, it's a lot of buzzwords, I'm sure, for your audience. But I think, again, for me, my, uh, my North Star is novelty and creativity. And I think I've been, I've been trying to be at the edge of what's available in our industry. 
interesting because you say creativity and that's not normally a word you hear in financial services. So (laughs) kind of refreshing take on all of it. So is there anything you're working on now specifically that, you know, we should know about or anything exciting on the horizon? Yeah. So, you know, first off, everybody should go and download MetaMask uh, and join the 30 million uh, other people every month who use Web3 through that wallet. Um, But in terms of what I'm personally doing, you know, I've been really investing in learning and building a skill set around the idea of crypto economics. And I think for, for people of of, of similar skill sets to mine. So, you know, understands how, understand how markets work, understand how economies work, um, interested in power in economics and governance and in politics. I, I think it's, it's an amazing new area. It really is. You know, if you're, if you're an economist or if you're interested in economic systems 20, 30 years ago, the, the only way that you get to, um, you know, quote unquote, run experiments or compare data or form a hypothesis is through data analysis and looking at, you know, you're, you're looking at the crisis in Venezuela versus compared to the crisis 30 years, you know, in uh, forward in some other geography and trying to draw some sort of parallel. Like there's no applied version of macroeconomics other than for the one person that runs the Federal Reserve. Um, that's entirely different today. I mean, it, it is so um, fundamentally different today. You can be an you can be an applied macroeconomist where you create um, token based ecosystems um, that have their own currency, that have their own um, you know economy, that have their own players, and you can play with uh, ecosystem design and mechanism design um, and create do experiments and see what kind of things work and don't work in an open population of people and financial assets. And so I think it's just a totally fantastic opportunity for people to take, take a, a paper or like a, an analysis-based uh, pseudoscience and turn it into a practice where they get feedback, experimental feedback immediately. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. That's really interesting, but I did promise listeners we would be talking all things DeFi and decentralized finance. You're obviously a big proponent of it. So in layman's terms, what is DeFi and what are the benefits and opportunities within that space? I've had a lot of ways to think about um, DeFi and a framework around it. And so I'll just give two um, because I think it takes a while to believe any of the things coming in in the crypto and the Web3 space. And so you know, depending on how people enter it, they can choose different ideas. Um, One idea, and I think one of the simplest ideas is that it's just an upgrade to the manufacturing of financial services. So to the extent that fintech represented mostly by things like Revolut and Robinhood and Chime and, you know, SoFi and Lending Club and so on, uh, Lemonade, took traditional financial products, insurance, banking, savings, payments, and so on. I forgot cash app in my list and made it um, available to everybody through the phone rather than through some other process that's opened up distribution. But the thing that was distributed was, let's say a classic. It's like the Spotify of records. And you don't want a Spotify of records. You want a Spotify of MP3s and streaming songs. And so uh, DeFi is... um, 
financial machines, financial infrastructure that sits on computational blockchains. The blockchains themselves are decentralized and validated usually by um, groups of you know, uh, people that can leave or join the maintenance of that network and the network runs software um, and a consensus mechanism and uh, maintains digital assets. And so DeFi sits on top of these networks, these open protocols, and does things like savings and banking and, de you know, deposits and lending and, and um, capital markets and investments and asset allocation and so on. And so it's, it's a different manufacturing paradigm for financial products. So you can even say financial engineering paradigm for financial products, but the financial products are very familiar. They're, you know, they're the same products, just using different technology. So that's, that's a very simple view of what's going on. And it's a view that gives a lot of credit to the financial industry and assumes that the financially, the financial industry sort of like matters in a way that I think is probably wrong. Um, the, the other way to think about DeFi is that if you think about a financial industry, it's a derivative of the real economy. So there's an economy, people perform labor, they make things, they have commerce, they exchange things, they need to pay, they need to save and so on. And so the, the financial industry as a whole is an outgrowth of real economic activity. Um, and so similarly for these computational blockchains that I've mentioned, um, they form, they form a system that underpins a, uh, like a digital economy and we call it the web three economy. And we can talk about what that means later, but it's, it's an economy of people coming together in digital environments and creating digital objects, uh, exchanging them and so on. And so in, in that case, from that frame, uh, DeFi is the banking sector for the web three economy. And I think that's probably the better way to think about it longer term. So is there one single event that really kicked off this push for decentralized finance or was it a plethora of things within the industry or just consumer demand at the end of the day that's really driving this? Because in the last you know decade alone, this has become a pretty huge topic, especially with the explosion of blockchain and crypto. I think people have a wrong uh, view of innovation, or you know, maybe I'll create a straw man and argue with it uh, <laughs> to make to make it sound like I'm making a smart point. You know, innovation's not um, it's not like this ladder, you know, and it's not these geniuses that are creating some uh, amazing thing um, that's entirely unique and out of their mind. You know, what's happening is is kind of like this erosion process with technology. Flowing, flowing like water against particular barriers, right? And so you have the same themes come in and come in and over and over again and driven by different people in different geographies, often combining the state-of-the-art technologies of the time um, to come up with identical innovations or ideas um, almost simultaneously or you know six months apart because that's the, the art of the possible. I think DeFi is an outgrowth of things like Ethereum and Web3, where you can have blockchains that can run software. That uh, is an outgrowth of you know, the, the Bitcoin blockchain, which is not computational, but can have digital, digital assets. That is an outgrowth of or a response to um, 
the collapse of Lehman and the bailing out of Lehman and sort of a loss of uh, trust in the Fed. But that loss of trust in the Fed is also connected to the loss of trust in broader institutions. And you can point to 2016, you can point to uh, disinformation on Facebook. You can point to the advertising model and sort of the the attention economy, which which is an outgrowth of the fact that um, uh, digital goods like like pictures and sound files and movies are not scarce on the internet in Web two and can just be copied and pasted. And so the only way to monetize them is to advertise, and that's just the natural path of how how things got built. Like it wasn't anybody's decision. It's just the, these sequential events kind of follow through. So I think DeFi is a dialectic. It's a response to the financial industry that we have. And in many ways, it's, it's very, it's both anarchist and libertarian and populist at the same time, um, where it centers on the individual, where it explicitly restricts institutional involvement in people's finances um, and makes financial engineering and financial products self-service. It, it makes them open source and it makes them self-service. So the manufacturing, you know, it says anyone can go to a 3D printer and 3D print a car, you know, as opposed to having to go to a dealership. That's a sci-fi example. Um, in the same way, if somebody needs a loan, they go to a DeFi protocol, put in collateral, get a loan literally within you know the time it takes to process a block, which is under a minute. And so the, the whole architecture of it is um, flipped over. So it feels a lot more like the cash in your wallet and what you do with the cash in your wallet when you go into a store rather than invoking the financial infrastructure that we have today. So that's not, not, not a direct answer, but hopefully it gives you color in terms of where it's coming from. Absolutely. And so from really from anywhere that you have an internet connection, you can lend, trade, borrow, you know, peer-to-peer um, using software that ultimately records and verifies these financial transactions you're making, which leads me to blockchain, which I feel like is still a bit of a touchy subject as the technology continues to evolve. And I know this could be a whole episode alone, but can you give a quick state of the union around blockchain and the implications it's having on the financial service industry? Because there's it, people's hair seems to stand up because it could ultimately el- eliminate that middleman. Yeah, um, it's it's really it's a very difficult topic because, especially for a skeptical audience, to find the place of common ground can be very difficult. You know, like I'm somebody who started on Wall Street and got slowly shifted more and more through fintech into crypto now into DeFi and then Web three, and I understand and believe in in the language of the space on its own terms. Like I have no reason to doubt that the 16 year old that prefers web three over something from 30 years ago is going to be right. And I will be wrong. It's, it's obvious to me that the flow of time will create the outcome that this person's infrastructure and preferences will become the dominant, the dominant sort of narrative and platform in the same way that, you know, I grew up on the internet and, when I was in college and got on Facebook, now Facebook is sort of the medium of, of communication for, um, for, for the, the whole generation. So I've been able to, to try to understand the space on its own terms. And I would advise people to start from that place as well, rather than from the things that they think they know. 
Um, I also think that, you know, I use the word platform shift. Um, there are lots of technologies that people adopt, and some of them are fundamental and large, you know, secular shifts. Others are incremental or product features, you know, and so my earliest company was a robo-advisor, and I felt that it was a big innovation. Um, but in retrospect, 10 years forward, I can tell that a robo-advisor is a it's, it's an improvement on a distribution channel and it's a better workflow, but end of the day, it's something that can be incorporated into like an, an existing service offering. And it's a pretty narrow innovation. It makes things better and it puts it, you know, uh, wealth management or asset management into a phone, but it's, it's not the phone itself. Right. Uh, let's be clear that none of the banks matter relative to Apple tiny, poor, like poorly valued features inside of the phone. Your bank is your iPhone and it's got three or four buttons in it, right? Chase, Morgan Stanley, and Fidelity. The actual things in the buttons don't matter. And it's going to take a while for banks to really understand. And I use banks kind of broadly for financial companies to understand that they, they're mere service providers into the distribution channel of the phone. Anyway, blockchain, just like machine learning and just like AR and VR, there, that it's a it's a big idea, and it's an idea that's much much bigger than some of the narrower fintech themes that, um, you know, we're, we're maybe more comfortable with. And because of that, it's subject to very grandiose claims, um, and it's also subject to like claims that are very hard to prove wrong, which is why a lot of people are skeptical. But if you look at platform shifts, whether it's um, whether it's, for example, it took 50 years for artificial intelligence to start doing machine vision, uh, despite the claims 50 years ago being generally correct, but not having the right processing power. Um, I, I think you can, you can see and you can project a lot of the things that are going to happen in the same way that you can, you can maybe draw the line between the first pixelated pictures on a Nintendo or a Game Boy, you can draw the line from that to a full Star Wars movie rendered in um, like a Unity engine with high fidelity that's completely hyper-realistic. There's no difference between that first pixel in Mario and the gigantic hyper-realistic three-hour movie that costs $500 million to make. It's, it's the same vector. One is just the conclusion of the vector. And so today's blockchains are very janky in many ways, they are, um, they have limited capacity to process things. So it's not a computer in the sense that your, la your laptop is much more powerful than the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, it's very expensive to use a blockchain because everyone has to agree on the computation. But um, what, you, what you get when you agree on the computation, meaning that everybody competes to, to um, determine the truth in any particular block. And that's why, you know, gas is expensive and so on. What you get out of agreeing on a truth is you get a, you get like a digital timeline of what actually happened and you get digital goods that are actually scarce. So if I were to give you, you know, a, a physical dollar, let's say I would no longer have it and you would have it. If I were to give you a picture of a dollar, we would both have a picture of a dollar in our email. Therefore, it's not really useful for kind of a human economy. 
But if I had a digital dollar on a blockchain and I sent that to you, I would no longer have it. So all of a sudden you're introducing economic scarcity into the architecture of the internet, you know, and I'll, I'll let your listener connect the dots on their own after that. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that was a, a great analogy and an example of that. So I appreciate that. And, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit in our conversation, but, you know, one of the latest buzzwords to catch on recently is Web3. You mentioned internet, but, you know, what is Web3 and what kind of impact is it having uh, on our industry? Sure. I think people like to say Web3. People also like to say the word metaverse. So I'll, I'll do that as well. Um, oh, is it interchangeable? I, That's a- it's not it's not entirely <laughs> interchangeable, but I think you'll see you'll see the stuff blend together. So I, I, I use the word computational blockchain because it has it makes people think about computers, you know, and there are smart contracts on these blockchains, which means you can run software. But Web3 is kind of the broader phenomenon of people using and building stuff on top of these computational blockchains. Um, so things like Ethereum and Solana and Avalanche and Polygon and so on, these are rails that can be connected and they all have um, the ability to run applications in a particular format. And Web3 is, I would say, the the collective browsing and economic experience that you get out of engaging with all of these, these different businesses and applications and communities and so on. I think what's happening in addition is that there's a cultural shift, um, not just a technology shift. And so the cultural shift is out of Web2, which is the Facebook internet, you know, these gated gardens of Google and Facebook powered by advertising and into Web3, which is um, a, a much more economic place, much more capitalist place, but where people have property rights over their digital self as well as privacy. Um, so, so that's kind of the cultural shift. And there is a, an explosion in art uh, and expression around this. And I think a lot of the art and expression, which is like internet memes and culture, is also captured into Web3. And so the, the next step after that is to say, if you add to that, to that economic chassis of Web3, more digital worlds and marry it with augmented reality devices or virtual reality devices, and then maybe combine it with some of the machine vision stuff um, coming out of Facebook so that you can scan your whole world and, and things of that nature. That's when you start getting into the concept of the metaverse. So you have the platform shift of uh, crypto and blockchain. You have the platform shift of machine vision or uh, sorry, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And then you have the platform shift of AR, VR all coming together. And that's where you're starting to see like a, a digital world with an economic chassis. And that's the metaverse. And you obviously can't escape the headlines lately around crypto. Where are we in the crypto cycle? And you know what factors does consensus ultimately look at when analyzing the crypto market? What are you watching right now? Yeah, I think for you know for asset managers and for from for people in capital markets looking at the space, I've articulated a lot of like fundamental or operating concepts um, about why there is a there there in this in this theme. And um, I think 
if you zoom out end of the day, you can look at it and say, do I want exposure? Do I not want exposure? What is this as an asset class, right? So this, these, these themes express themselves in some sort of return and some sort of performance, and then you need to structure portfolios around it. And now in 2022, there's lots of ways that you can actually get exposure to this, whether it's through um, things like Fireblocks or MetaMask Institutional. And, and you know, there, there's lots of ways to actually play in the space for financial exposure. The last six to nine months, six months in particular, have been very damaging for prices uh, of crypto assets. And it's a combination of two large factors in my view. The first is um, the overall macro environment and the interest rate hikes from the Fed and the inflation news um, is wiping out all risk assets. And uh, crypto is the the riskiest, you know, black swan risk asset out there. And so, you know, if if you there's sort of just a mechanical element to that. Um, and then the second, the second thing is that crypto has had a financial crisis similar to um, what happened in 2008 with Lehman, where there, you know, in, in the financial crisis, there was a, there was an asset class that spoiled. There was an asset class that performed much worse than expected, right? In terms of um, mortgage-backed securities. And so the structuring kind of hid the actual risk profile of those uh, of those assets. And the fact that a lot of people were going to default on things um, led a lot of derivatives to, to collapse in ways that people didn't model. And then that had a ca- liquidation cascade. So whoever defaulted made the next the next entity defaults and there was a confidence crisis and run on the bank. And so exactly the same thing is happening in crypto where a very large protocol collapsed. Um, people um, in, in value. Uh, and so there, there were a lot of investors who had a mistaken view of the exposure in a protocol and you know, we can debate endlessly whether Terra was, you know, a pyramid or whether it was, you know, a- attempted to be designed well, but in the end wasn't. I I can't speak to that, but there was a, a large wiping out of value in a protocol, which blew up um, a number of investors who were levered, and those investors had borrowed in order to be levered, and they borrowed from uh, companies that that were lending to them sometimes out of uh, retail deposits. And so that created runs on the bank uh, for the the entities that ended up doing the the lending, and a bunch of them are now, you know, in bankruptcy or similar. So you look at Celsius or Voyager or BlockFi, um, basically wiped out by the by the explosion of Three Arrows Capital. So the bad news is it's a liquidation cascade and it's a financial crisis. The good news is that's an extremely uh, boring and well, you know, a very familiar shape in terms of a crisis. It's not that, you know, crypto doesn't work. So for example, in 2008, people continued to live in houses, even though they defaulted on their mortgages. And similarly, just because a bunch of crypto assets fell doesn't really imply anything for the operating progress of 
the space, um, but it, it is uh, definitely a negative, negative investment experience for a lot of people. But it's clear, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's clear that it's here to stay. It's interesting because, you know, specifically looking through the lens of wealth management and asset management, you know, I saw a stat from Bitwise that over 70% of advisors said that they suspect their clients already dabbling in crypto without them really knowing or engaging them. It still feels like there's this big disconnect between, you know, the wealth management world advisors and their actual clients and what they want. So curious of, on your thoughts on that. Um, if, if, if I don't have anything nice to say, I shouldn't say it. It's sort of my, <laughs> my thought. You know, I, I spent a long time um, running an RIA uh, and then building software for RIAs. And so I'm happy to in, invoke the word fiduciary or dimensional fund advisors or, you know, whatever it is, investment philosophy, risk tolerance, and so on. Um, the the reality is that I think the the industry just got really out of touch with what matters to people. And for all the speaking about how financial advice is meant to enable people to live better lives, I, I just think that m- many folks in the industry refused to learn about something that was really important and interesting to their clients. Even if you think it's dangerous for them, you should be an expert in how. So, you know, let's say you're a doctor and you think that all your patients are doing heroin. Well, maybe you should at least know how the heroin works so that you can um, uh, get them off it somehow instead of, you know, berating them for making poor life choices. And I think, it's, it's not the fault of the advisor industry either or the wealth industry either. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually an, an issue of the value chain. And so the, the value chain in finance and asset management is that the asset manager builds the fund product, the institutional salesperson sells it to a distributor or wealth manager. The wealth manager then goes on and sells it to a bunch of individuals and then intermediates it through some software or planning or whatever it is. And so all the ideas, quote unquote, come from some portfolio manager way, way downstream. And by the way, the portfolio manager can only trade the stuff that they are, that they are plugged into from a custody and exchange perspective. So if it doesn't trade on the New York Stock Exchange or doesn't have an ETF, it's, it's from a value chain perspective as no way it's going to end up in an advisor portfolio. And by the way, every single piece of software along the way is just horrible for new asset classes, like can't support private equity, can't support hedge funds, can't support commodities, can't support even mutual fund reconciliation, You know, let alone crypto assets, which are on a completely different architecture. So I don't think that advisors had the tools all the way down to the exchange and custody level to be able to, ex- to engage on the stuff very authentically. But the good news is that's changing. That, that is no longer the case. So there's just a tremendous amount of tooling now to help advisors um, and asset managers learn about this stuff. You know, I know, for example, PlannerDAO uh, as an organization where if you're a financial planner and want to be part of something in Web3, you can learn more there. And then, of course, companies like OnRamp and Best, uh, which create REA infrastructure to, to, to hold crypto assets. So I, I think the bridges are being built. And then the kind of the next real piece of work is for 
a mental model change from financial professionals to to understand that investment ideas are increasingly coming uh, from clients in in a world full of social media and you know uh, very popular uh, Web three participation and. As fintechs and wealth tech matures to kind of meet these demands um, of this, what I call kind of new age investor, um, you know, how should fintechs take all this into consideration moving forward? You know, for instance, here at Flyer, our trading network supports digital assets. So do you think we'll start seeing firms shift their product roadmaps to accommodate this to become more mainstream? You know, I think of portfolio management in particular, um, because the traditional portfolio manager software for the most part is really a, a bit too underpowered and slow to handle the diverse investments and speed that modern investors really want to work with. I'm not sure how to answer that question. I think, you know, I think there's going to be traditional wrappers that flows into existing portfolio management product, like some of the Bitcoin products out there on the market. I think they are bad products um, in that they are unnecessarily or unreasonably expensive and you know, poorly performing relative to the underlying, given how unbelievably easy it is to actually hold the underlying. Like if a 14-year-old can multitask between, you know, I'm aging myself here, but like <laughs> World of Warcraft and at the same time crypto trading, um, why would you put on top of that 20 custodians and a mutual fund wrapper and two and a half percent in fees and then like shove that into an investment process? It just doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't make sense to me. The whole point is to step around all this. So I, I think what is more likely to happen is that we're going to see... I mean, I'll tell you what I would do, right? If I were if I were building an RA business in this space, what I would do is I would, um, I would basically buy an out of the box robo advisor asset allocation for anything traditional, and then forget about it because no value add there relative to sort of what the bench line is, the benchmark is. But you need to deliver it, and then I would focus all my effort on figuring out how do I find and distribute advice, legitimate advice to clients that are crypto native, understand where they live, what do they consume? How do I talk to them? Here's a hint. They're on YouTube and Discord and TikTok. <laughs> um, and then number two is I would do everything I could to spend time with technology providers that focus very deeply on reporting the tax issue, you know, performance reporting, uh, tax issues, and um, kind of rebalancing of people's crypto portfolios. And the issues are different from, hey, I want to put you in a pie chart with a sharp ratio. The issues are, how do I, how do I exit this position without moving a market? You know, how do I take out a loan against this so that I have liquidity and then convert that into actual, how do I go from a stable coin into a bank? That's the issue. And I think, you know, if you're an advisor and you don't understand these words, then no problem. You don't have to go after this client base, but you're you're just going to be missing out on the growth area for the next generation. 
So I'm a believer that we'll see a completely new advisory firm of the future here soon. At least that's the hope as they try to keep up with these trends. But is there anything in our industry that has surprised you lately in this in this realm of DeFi and crypto and, and blockchain? You know, we've talked about some of the negatives behind things, but anything that's surprised you lately? Yeah, I think I was, I was, for me, I kind of described these two versions of thinking about DeFi. And um, I, I had to really do a big mental shift to go from, oh, this is just a better version of finance to this is the finance industry for the Web3 economy. And so I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out, is there a Web3 economy? What is what does it make? Who's it for? What are the opportunities there? You know, who is the payment processor for it? Who is the um, merchant acquirer for the payment for, for this place? Um, and I think the, the day-to-day, like the evidence that you see is like people buying NFTs and wanting to belong to different experiences or people joining DAOs, like Web3 collectives and building things together with people and having like these um, pretty monumental kind of experiences together of trying to buy the constitution or (laughs) raising funding for Ukraine or, you know, waving a flag around in a 3D space next to Snoop Dogg. You know, like this is what people are doing and this is their labor. This is what they're actually producing. You know, and I think for me, uh, it's a wake up moment to say this, you know, there, there is a productive um, place that's different from what it was before. And then, you know, how does finance wrap around that? So um, I think there's been an absolute, uh, a, a very surprising amount of art and expression and certainly like low quality grift, um, as, as is often the case, but still a lot of amazing, totally amazing creative stuff coming out of, um, NFTs and web three there. And so I just love the fact that kind of culture is spilling over into technology here. Absolutely. So as we wind down here, I'd love to ask a few, what I really affectionately call fun questions, not that the other ones weren't fun, but a little more personal. Um, so what's, one thing people don't know about you or something that might, you know, shock them. Shock them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I I don't know if it'll shock anybody that I make uh, computer-based generative art. Uh, Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. So one of the things that was really weird for me is that I spent kind of my childhood building websites and making stuff in flash and video and making visual art as a hobby. And it's, (laughs) <laughs> it's now turned into like an investment asset class, which is just so weird, you know, so, so weird. But uh, that's that's one of the things. So I, I was going to ask what's your biggest passion, but it sounds like, you know, art and digital art and visual, you know, art is is a big part of your life. So that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, right now it's, it's uh, I've... Uh, two kids and spend a lot of time with them and that's fantastic. And, and then whatever little bit of fitness I can get in there, that's also, <laughs> I understand also that. good. And I think everything else is kind of on pause for now. <laughs> no, that, that makes absolute sense. And I would imagine that your children are going to be well-versed in this space too. Are, are they showing any interest yet in, <laughs> in technology and systems and finance? <laughs> 
Well, one is learning how to read um, and <laughs> so the other just got through potty training. So, so yeah, definitely. You can never is, start uh, too early. No, it's fine. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Lex, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Really appreciate your insights and getting to know you a little bit better. Um, but please feel free to tell our listeners where they can find resources and learn more about um, consensus uh, resources. I know you have a, a great newsletter uh, as well that, that folks should subscribe to. So feel free to um, share that information. Yeah, I, I'm easy to find you know, for consensus. Check out consensus.net and of course, metamask.io for uh, the, the Web3 wallet to, to get around. And then uh, for my newsletter, uh, check out fintechblueprint.com where I write about these innovation themes within financial services. And then Lex Oakland on Twitter and other places uh, around the web. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on all major podcasting platforms and follow Flyer Financial Technologies on LinkedIn and Twitter at FlyerFT or visit our website at www.flyerft.com to learn more. Thank you all and have a great day. Thank you for listening to In The Money, the show that delivers advisors, asset managers, broker dealers, and other technology service providers the knowledge they need to navigate this industry. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Flyer Financial Technologies. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.